Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. It was 80 years ago, on the night of the 16th, 17th May, 1943, that Operation Chastise took place. You'll remember it, you'll know it as the Dam Busters. The mission to try and strike the dams in the Ruhr Valley that would bring German industry to a grinding halt. Those who carried out this mission have gone down in history as heroes. The heroes of 617 Squadron, led by the famous Guy Gibson. Most literally led as he was in the first wave in the first plane that went in on that mission. But as time has gone by, these heroes have become controversial. Controversial for everything down to the dog that they owned and what they named it, through to the mission itself and the 1,500 people that died on the other side of the dams as they were breached, many of whom were women who were Russian and Polish, captured slave laborers. And so how should we remember this history of the dam busters on this 80th anniversary? Well, there was only one person to ask, someone who has interviewed Barnes Wallace, someone who has interviewed Bomber Harris, It is one of the country's, one of the world's leading military historians, Sir Max Hastings. Max has a book out, Chastise, The Dambuster Story, 1943, and it's from his decades of research, going all the way back to his first book on Bomberkaband and through to Chastise today, that we learn from Sir Max about all of the intricacies and the legacies of this vital mission. So, Max, welcome to Warfare. It's an absolute pleasure to host you on the podcast. How are you? Are you well? I'm pretty good, as well as anybody can be, given the state of the world. Well, that's a very very good point. But I think one thing about your work and your vast array of books is it helps us understand some of the present turmoil in the world. And I've admired your work for a very long time, and especially your most recent work on Operation Pedestal, that vital mission to break the siege of Malta. But today, we're marking an incredibly important anniversary in the history of the Second World War, the 80th anniversary of Operation Chastise, when the RAF 617 Squadron set off to destroy three dams in the Ruhr Valley in northwest Germany, with this ingenious Barnes-Wallace bouncing bomb. Now, Max, this mission was carried out in May 1943, But when did the planning begin? I've read that it was when British engineer Barnes Wallace was experimenting with bouncing marbles across a water tub in his back garden. Was it at this moment that he thought Eureka and the project began? The marble story is one of those lovely stories that actually is true. That's how Barnes Wallace did start. And I've sat in that garden near Weybridge with Barnes Wallace many, many years ago now, hearing him talk about this. But the whole idea of the dam started much earlier, because even before the Second World War, the chiefs of the Royal Air Force recognised that if they could break the Ruhr reservoirs, they could inflict a devastating blow on German industrial production. The problem was how to do it. And that obviously was the issue that Barnes Wallace also latched onto very early in the war. And he came up with this extraordinary plan 
for bouncing bombs over the torpedo nets that protected the dams to attack the dams. Now, at the time, one of the things you've got to remember, I'm of an age that I was reared on the whole dams legend. And of course, in the early 1950s, that wonderful film, The Dam Busters, in which Richard Todd played Wing Commander Guy Gibson, caught our imagination. I think I've probably seen it 50 times since then, and I still love watching it. It's a great movie. Of course, both the book by Paul Brickhill and the film did romanticize the story. First of all, they made it seem that unimaginative bureaucrats hampered Barnes Wallace all the way. Well, in truth, what's always seemed to me amazing, and I wrote in my own book about it, was that from a very early stage, those unimaginative bureaucrats saw up the possibilities of Barnes Wallace's idea and gave it terrific support. And what one has to remember is that in 1942, when this weapon was being developed, that Britain was chronically starved of resources, that there were all sorts of people from all three services clamouring for steel, for aircraft, for all the things that Barnes Wallace needed to make his bombs. And it's a reflection of the imagination of the people in the Ministry of Economic Warfare and the Royal Air Force that they did support Barnes Wallace through a very long process. And right from the beginning, I mean, actually, Marshal Sir Arthur Harris, the monster who took over command of... He wasn't a fan, was he, Sir Max? He was perhaps, if we think about narrow-minded bureaucrats, it was Bomber Harris who didn't want the resources deviated away from his city bombing. Exactly. He was obsessed with the raids on the cities, so-called area bombing. He regarded this as a monstrous distraction. And he also did not believe, he never believed in precision attack. He was an area bombing man. He thought that bombing the cities, wrecking the morale of German industrial workers, he believed, was going to be the decisive blow. So he resisted this all the way until it became plain that not only the head of the Air Force, up to Charles Portal, but the Prime Minister were very enthusiastic about this idea that then Harris gave way, and then Harris agreed that a special squadron should be formed to launch the attacks, and he appointed, he personally chose Guy Gibson, whom he greatly respected, to lead that squadron, and he then gave it a support because he could see this was going to happen with or without him. So what was it that changed Bomber Harris's mind? Was he able to see this bouncing bomb in tests? And was he convinced by that? Because when I've been through some of Bomber Harris's papers, I've seen just how much he detested the idea of American precision bombing doctrine based on that industrial web theory. And it wasn't so much about the idea that, you know, we should purely inflict this pain on civilians, but it was more the fact that that's all that we could technically achieve, and that was the militarily successful strategy, whereas the Americans were still toying with this idea of Norden bomb sites and pinpoint precision bombing, which just wasn't working in practice and wasn't going to fly in the heat of war. Was he worried that this technical fix to a problem just wasn't achievable and was a waste of resources? Well, first of all, he thought it couldn't be done. He just didn't believe this far-fetched idea. And also, One must never forget that although in my book on the raids on Operation Chastise, I've made play that the results of the attack fell far short of what Barnes Wallace and Sir Charles Portal hoped, that it still remains a kind of miracle, which I personally believe it's right that Britain continues to celebrate, that in the space of five or six weeks, Guy Gibson trained this special squadron 
to perform this incredible feat of courage and determination that to these guys in the film it presents the idea that 617 Squadron was all a bunch of heroes and aces. They were certainly all heroes, but they were not all aces. There were a few very experienced pilots, Hoppy Hopgood, Mickey Martin, a few like that, Dingy Young, they had flown a lot of operations. But Gibson himself was regarded by many people, although he was incredibly brave and he'd flown a lot of operations, as not necessarily a virtuoso airman in the same class as Mickey Martin and Hoppy Hopgood. And also, they made up the numbers for the squadron. When they didn't get enough volunteers, they made up the numbers with very inexperienced people. Bob Harris said at the beginning, when the squadron was formed, oh, I'm sure that some of our old veterans, our old lags, won't mind doing one more op. He was completely wrong. A lot of these guys who'd already defied the odds by finishing their tours, the last thing they wanted to do was one more op. So in order to make up the numbers, they had to draft a whole flight, some of them very unwilling, from 57 Squadron, uh, which shared Scampton with 617. So the fact that what was certainly not an elite at the beginning that Gibson, in five or six weeks, managed to make it an elite by sheer force of personality and leadership. People didn't like him. I never got over the shock. Back in 1978, when I was researching my one of my first books, Former Command, and I remember interviewing an airman, a rear gunner, who had served under Gibson. And I said, what do you think of him? And remember, in those days, I was still a hero worshipper and he said, oh, I hated his guts. He said it was, he was a sort of little bugger who was always jumping out from behind a hut and telling your buttons were undone. And this was such a shock to me because I had this image. And I've learned since it's often the case that heroes, and God knows we all need heroes in all our nations, that heroes are often not popular with the guys who have to fly with them. They feel well, it's all right for him if he wants to win a Victoria Cross. But what about us? And it says a lot for the fact that Gibson, although most of them didn't like him, that his powers of leadership to turn that squadron into this extraordinary group who were able to attack and break two of the road dams, it was an astounding feat. And my gosh, he deserved his Victoria Cross. What sort of leader was Guy Gibson? I've always wondered this. Of course, he was a man who literally led from the front as so many did during those aerial campaigns. But was he a taskmaster? I mean, if you've got to turn this around in five Very or six hard weeks. taskmaster, ruthlessly sacked anybody who didn't come up to his specifications. And his crew, that his best biographer, Richard Morris, who wrote an excellent book about him, and Richard Morris said, with his crew, who Gibson presented in his own book, Enemy Coast Ahead, as a band of brothers, that actually his own crew, first of all, they didn't know him very well, and secondly, as Morris, I think, rightly wrote, there was very much a sort of master-servant attitude in that Lancaster between Gibson and the guys who flew with him. And this idea that they were all so close to each other was absolutely, this was something that was dreamed up for Enemy Coast Ahead. And one always has to wonder, if you're a soldier on the ground, you always have a choice whether you want to be brave that day. And quite a lot of soldiers when the chap at the front said, right on, chaps, over the top. Some men exercise their choice not to go over the top. But if you're in a warship or you're in a bomber and your commander chooses to be brave, you've jolly well got to be brave with him, whether you like it or not. Now, 
Gibson did something quite extraordinary over the dams. First of all, he overflew the Mona. Just have a look at it. And then after he himself had dropped his bomb and it had fallen short, he flew over the dam twice more in order to draw the fire of the German flat gunners up onto his own aircraft and away from the plane that was bombing. Now, I've always said to myself in my cynical way, I wonder if some of the guys in that Lancaster with Guy Gibson might have actually not been too keen on flying over the Mona Dam for the third time, but they didn't have that choice. When you were talking about the fact that uh, one or two airmen may not have wanted to join this mission, do you think part of it was being under Gibson's command? Did he, was he notorious for being a taskmaster? Was that something that inspired hesitancy? Or did they know some details of the mission? Or were they simply told that this is going to be a risky one, lads? But uh, They realised, most uh, of the men who were carrying this up, they realised, and if they didn't know at the beginning, they certainly knew in training, this was nearly a suicide mission and it was more likely than not to get them killed. And one has to remember that nearly half the men who set out from Scampton that evening of the 16th of May, 1943, nearly half of them didn't come back. And so it was, even by the standards, your ordinary bomber command mission over Germany, they reckoned to lose somewhere between 3 and 6% of the crews. Well, that's 3 in 100 well, out of the 19 crews that took off from Scampton, eight failed to come back. Eight were lost over Germany. And that's a pretty terrifying rate of loss. And in fact, I interviewed Bomber Harris for my book, Bomber Command, back in 1978. And I said that I'd also interviewed Barnes Wallace. And Barnes Wallace had said that his big regret about the dams mission was that having broken the dams, Bomber Command never went back and attacked the dams while they were being repaired with conventional bombs, which would have knocked over the scaffolding and could have kept the reservoirs empty through the winter. And Harris replied to me, he said, any operation of war that is deserving of the Victoria Cross is by its nature unfit to be repeated. Now, actually, this was all nonsense because Barnes Wallace was making the point that you didn't need to use his bouncing bombs again, which you couldn't because the Germans had now got the dams too well defended. Just conventional bombs which could have knocked over the scaffolding, could have prevented them from... But Harris wasn't interested. And also, when it became plain a few weeks after the dams raid, that although it had caused the Germans some inconvenience, it had not done the damage to German industrial production that Barnes Wallace and Sir Charles Portal and others had hoped for, Harris wrote a pretty vicious memorandum saying that the intelligence reports confirmed all he thought all along, that the whole thing was a lot of nonsense. And Harris, although, of course, those documents weren't released until long after the war, Harris became a temporary believer when it became plain that the powers that be were determined to make him do that raid. But once it was over, and all the victory celebrations and all the decorations had been awarded and so on, then Harris went back where he'd started from and said, I always said the whole thing was a lot of nonsense. On Medieval from History Hit, we set out to solve the biggest mysteries of the medieval age. So many of these travellers who went out looking for Prester John, what did they think they were hearing? Using science to identify our buried ancestors. Genetic signatures found in present-day Ashkenazi Jewish populations were shared by the genetic ancestries we found in these individuals. And reveal the answers to centuries-old riddles. 
I stand up straight in a bed, I'm hairy at my base and I make the ladies cry. The solution is an onion. I'm Matt Lewis and every Tuesday and Friday you can join me to travel the medieval world in search of the stories you haven't heard and to get under the skins of the ones you have. Gone Medieval from History Hit, twice a week, every week. Listen and follow on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This must have been a bit of a letdown for the crews themselves. And this was an international crew, we should remember. There were British, Canadians, Australians, New Zealanders, and crew from the United States as well. Were they not told that this would be worth the risk, that this could be a war-winning mission? Yeah, they were told. But it has to be said very often at wartime briefings, and God knows I've read enough wartime briefings, the texts of what crews were told before mission, they were quite often told this is going to be a mission that can change the course of the war. But I, even to this day, I operate on the principle, sometimes you'll see books on your airport bookstore that say, this was the mission that changed the Second World War. And you want to throw it straight in the dustbin because wars, and especially great wars like the Second World War, are not like that. Wars are about masses of little things. You don't get one night's work or one battle or one anything that changes the course of the war. But when you're trying to wind people up to do something fantastically dangerous, then it's not too surprising that their commanders are cynical enough to sell them a yarn. And they were sold a yarn. But one has to remember, most of the crews were not told after the event. They did not know about the intelligence report showing that German German industrial production had hardly been affected. They were not told before the raid that breaking the Mona and the Sorpy down, it was essential if rural industrial production was really going to be effective. They were told that the Ada Dam was also a vital objective. But in fact, and this very often happened with bomber command operations, that the Ada was added to the target list because although it had no relevance to rural industrial production, it was a masonry dam, which they reckoned, rightly, was vulnerable to Barnes Wallace's bombs. And what's certainly true And we don't want to sound too iconoclastic about this. I'm still a believer. I still think it was just worth it, the whole thing. It made a fantastic mess in Germany, and it frightened the life out of the German powers that be. And it appalled the German people, all those who heard about it. Rumours spread around Germany that far more people had been killed than actually. In fact, the raid killed about 1,500 people, half of them hapless slave labourers and prisoners of war. But rumours spread around Germany that far worse damage had been done. Of course, there was this terrific temporary flooding. And on the margin, and most things in wars are on the margin, I still think it was worth it. And I'm absolutely sure that we're right to go on being awed by the courage of those young men who carried it out and by the brilliance of Barnes Wallace and what he created. 
And of course, there's always the element of having an easier aspect to the target. So you can claim mission success, you can say that the technology was successful, and of course, that the investment of those vital resources and money was most certainly worth it. And like you rightly say, this is one small aspect of the war, but for those living on the other side of the dams, it was most certainly no small aspect of the war. And one thing that um, I admire so much, I think you do so well in your book on Vietnam, is you turn our attention to the civilians and those who are the victims of war. And you do the same in your book on the dam busters. And so perhaps you could give us some details of what it was like on that other side of the dam as these biblical floods started to rush down. One has to remember, in the film that we all adored, and in Paul Brickhill's book, almost nothing was said. It almost appeared to be a guilt-free operation because some people, including, rather surprisingly, Guy Gibson himself, were worried by bombing civilians, were worried by, um, I don't just mean on the dams raid, but in general over Germany. And not many aircrew, most aircrew over Germany, they didn't think about the civilians underneath. All they knew was that they were carrying out operations who were likely to get them killed. And of course, they could never see the people underneath. But in this case, Gibson was appalled when they learned after the raid that this biblical flood that had been unleashed had caused a catastrophe below the Mona. And there was this camp full of mostly female slave laborers and another camp of prisoners of war. And they'd been swept away with about seven or 800 of these hapless people killed, drowned, and in fact, the irony was that where we were all told 50, 60 years ago that this was a raid that was just an attack on industrial production and that it wasn't like bombing civilians in the cities, the Dambusters raid killed more civilians than any operation so far the bomber commander carried out in the war. Now, of course, later in the war, when you get round to all the attacks on Berlin and Dresden, far more people, but on the night of May 16th, 17th, when... 617 Squadron killed 1,500 people. That was a more than had died on any single operation of the war so far. Do you know if there's any memorial or any work on these women, these Russian and Polish women, these slave labourers that had been you know, kept in the region, put to work by the Nazis? Is there any way that's been left to remember their price, their cost, their oh, yes. sacrament? There are today ah. memorials in Germany to them. I've seen them, and rightly so. And I'm very critical of the bomber offensive. I'm very critical of Bomber Harris. I don't think that bombing the cities of Germany was a very good idea. But the idea of calling it a war crime was absolutely ridiculous. And the bomber offensive throughout was always designed to save life by winning the war. Now, the fact that one didn't think it went very well, and I say Bomber Harris, he was a pretty horrible man. And I speak having spent some hours with him. But I'm afraid in wars, you need people like that there's a very good phrase I've quoted sometimes since that Churchill's last private secretary, Anthony Montague Brown, father of the present Archbishop of Canterbury, he asked Churchill in the 1950s about the bombing and what he thought of Bomber Harris. And Churchill replied, a considerable commander, but there was a certain coarseness about him. And Churchill, who had a very fine eye for a gentleman, and on the whole, Churchill liked gentleman heroes. He knew Bomber Harris was absolutely not a gentleman. But on the other hand, Churchill somewhere recognized you needed men of that ruthlessness, that driving purpose, when you're in the middle of a war of national survival. So although I absolutely would not never have liked to have Bomber Harris as a household pet, nations at war need people like that. 
And I feel like Churchill knew that across the board. You think of some of the leaders that he promoted and prioritised and kept around him. You know, you can talk about Monty perhaps being a particularly difficult character. We can talk about Bomber Harris. But for me, it's also Allenbrook, who he kept closest to him, who would speak that truth to power. Oh, Alan Brook was a wonderful man, I think, and deserves to be much better known. An awful lot of modern British people have heard of Montgomery, but they've never heard of Alan Brook. And Alan Brook was a terrific restraining influence on Churchill in the very best way. As for Montgomery, there's a very good quote in, I think it's Violet Bonham Carter's diaries, in which he describes a conversation with Churchill after Montgomery's victory at El Alamein, in which Churchill said, Such a pity, is it not? that our first general who appears capable of defeating a German army should be an unmitigated cad and bounder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he's not wrong. But when we come back to this mission itself, Sir Max, the, the men of 617 became celebrities, those, of course, who made it home. Were they ever able to confront that darker side of the history that you document so well in your book? Very few of them did. I mean, when I was writing Bomber Command in the late 1970s, I interviewed nearly 100 Bomber Command personnel. A few were haunted by the knowledge of having participated in the burning of the cities and the deaths of all those. I remember one man in particular, very brave pilot, who had flown a tour on Halifax's and then two more tours on Mosquitoes, very much decorated. And he said to me when I interviewed him, he said, has anyone else mentioned having nightmares about it? And I said no. And he said for years after the war, he was a guy called Alf Kirkham, wonderful man. And he said for years after the war, I didn't think about the bomber offensive and I became a teacher. And then he said people in the common room, young teachers, started getting at me and saying, how could you have done it? How could you have gone out over Germany and killed all those people? And he said I started to have these terrible nightmares and I wanted to make amends. And he said I became a remedial teacher, you know, because I felt I wanted to... This poor guy, whom I admired enormously, he become tortured by it. most of the crews. They only thought about the peril themselves, and even in their old age, they refused. They they were not interested in the darker side. But very interestingly, Gibson was troubled by it, and Gibson always said. And remember, he was killed in 1944. But Gibson wrote in Enemy Coast Ahead how shocked they'd been to discover that all these civilians had been killed in the dam's raid. So rather surprising in a way that here was Gibson, the ruthless leader, who was more imaginative than a lot of other people and maybe more imaginative than his commanders. And Harris went off Gibson big time. And after Gibson had done a tour in America, a publicity tour, in which he'd made some public remarks saying, first of all, he said he didn't believe bombing could win the war. And then he said how dismayed he was by the killing of all the civilians. Harris read these accounts and went absolutely nuclear. And one reason that Gibson, when he was killed two years afterwards, was still only a wing commander, the rank he held at the time of the dam's raid, was Harris's fury with him. And in fact, when a year or so later, a proposal was made that Leonard Cheshire should be sent on a publicity tour in America. And Harris wrote a memorandum, which I've read, saying absolutely not, after the way they spoil young Gibson. <laughs> Time to blame the Americans. But it's understandable what Gibson's saying. You know, you're told that you've got this magical technical fix to a major problem in the war, this this miracle magical bomb. 
And this could be a war-winning blow. And when it doesn't deliver that and the war continues on for two more years, you must start questioning exactly what the worth of that mission was and the sacrifice to the men themselves. And I was going through General Arnold's papers in the Library of Congress, and of course they had a similar predicament. They had this high-tech fix to the horror of war, these precision bombing tactics mixed with computers, and they they told their airmen that they were hitting pinpoint, hitting the targets, hitting the war-making industry, avoiding the civilians. But I was going through these files, and there was one in there, Sir Max, that said, crank letters. Airmen from the 8th Air Force, US airmen, who after the war was sending General Arnold letters saying, how could we have done this? We weren't hitting the war-making industry. We were barely hitting any targets. And so these technological fixes to the cost of war were all myths. And so this is something that I can kind of exactly see what Gibson's saying. The best thing you can say about Bomber Harris is he was an honest man. Harris never dissembled about what was being done, whereas the Americans did. Where you're absolutely correct is the Americans invented this myth that they were carrying out precision bombing, whereas especially... When they blind bombed through overcast, as they very often did in Europe, because the Norden Precision Bomb Site was designed for the clear skies of the United States. And when they blind bombed through overcast, the results were absolutely no different from those achieved by Bomber Command. But yes, the Americans cloaked all this. I think it was Arnold, it was Arnold or Spatz, I forget which, who wrote in a memorandum, we must never allow history to convict us of waging war on the man in the street. And this is complete load of rubbish. But this was the way that the Americans cloaked their bombing efforts. And another thing one has to remember, you know, about two very important lessons about wars. One, there's very seldom any one quick fix. And it was always damn silly to think that Barnes Wallace's bomb or any other weapon could win a global war at a stroke or provide the decisive weapon. In fact, if you want decisive weapons, you can make all sorts of cases for much humbler things like American trucks, or which bore the Red Army to Berlin and all that sort of thing. But secondly, participation in a long, murderous conflict on that scale, it coarsens people. So again, I remembered, and I've written about this in one of my books, that in 1940, a hurricane pilot described how shocked they were when they were in France during the German Blitzkrieg and they'd seen fighters, machine-gunning refugees on the road. And he came. this hurricane pilot came into the mess that day, and they were talking about this, and they were shocked that they'd thought the Luftwaffe pilots were fellow knights of the air. And he said, so they are ships after all. And he was really shocked by this. But then, in February 1945, the Americans and the British collaborated on Operation Clarion. Have you heard of Operation Clarion? I haven't. Tell me more. Right. Operation Clarion was, for 48 hours, all available British and German aircraft, including fighters, were launched on raids against small communities in Germany. They were specifically designed to terrorize small communities in Germany and to bring home to these small communities that the gig was up and it was time to quit because they'd lost the war. And the reasoning behind it was that the bombing of the big cities had left all these rural communities quite unscathed. And so for two days, all these fighter bombers cruising up and down the roads of Germany, shooting up and bombing all these innocent civilians. And what I'm saying 
is that if you put a proposal for Operation Clarion to the heads of the Air Forces in 1939, they would have touched it because this would have seemed barbaric. But by 1945, to quote an American, not an American pilot, but he said, he kept saying to captured Germans in France, why are you keeping going with all this business? You've lost, the war's over. All this is just wasted motion. And the rage many people felt that people, their own people were going on being killed when the gig was up, that although Hitler then was still alive, they had no hope of winning. And so therefore, they thought, we will show these bastards, the German people, that it's time to quit, that they've no hope. And so they went around shooting up all these farm carts and bombing villages and so on. And some people at the time, staff officers, in the in especially American staff officers, said that Clarion was barbaric, and it bloody was barbaric. Well, you, you go through so many of the reports after the war as well, and people like Bomber Harris who are justifying what they did or did on the American side, and you look at LeMay, and the idea was you go in as hard as possible to end the war as quickly as possible. And I suppose the Dam Busters were part of that. And as we think about and we reflect on this history 80 years on, Sir Max, how is it do you think that we should remember the Dam Busters today? Because it is an incredibly controversial history. It's become more controversial absurdly. I've just written an anniversary article in which the first sentence is, it's the blasted dog that's done it. <laughs> yes, we haven't mentioned um, the dog. That it is unbelievable that we're, today, when we all grew up with the legend of Guy Gibson's Black Labrador, which bore a name shared by tens of thousands of Black Labradors in those innocent days, and today it's regarded as evidence of systemic British racism. And, of course, in whenever the film's transmitted now, they delete the name of the dog. We wouldn't call dogs that now. But in those days, that's what went on. So, for them's sake, I've said in the piece I've written, let's not blame the dog for a start. But secondly, I do think the Dambusters raid represented an honest and honourable attempt to hasten the end of the war. And these very brave young men, 133 of them, went out to try and do something unbelievably dangerous, flying straight and level in darkness at 60 feet to have dropped these wretched bombs. And the fact that they had the courage, and in some cases, when they couldn't get the bomb site lined up on the first run, they went over, flew over two, three, four times. And the courage to do that, knowing it was likely to get them killed, and then it did. And also the fact that so many of them afterwards, even the ones who came home, were killed later. I can say as a historian, and I'm not embarrassed to say as a historian, the raid fell far short of what they'd all hoped for it. But that does not in any way change my very strong view that we're right to honour the people who carried out the Dam Busters mission and to remember their names. So Max, I couldn't agree more. And for our listeners who want to go deeper into this history, looking at both the mission itself and the consequences of that mission, then Sir Max's book, Chastise, The Dambuster Story, 1943, is out now. Sir Max, thank you so much for your time. You're always welcome on the Warfare Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for listening. But before you go, a reminder that you can now follow along online on Twitter at HistoryHitWW2, on Instagram at James Rogers History, and on TikTok also at James Rogers History. You can also subscribe to our free Warfare Wednesdays newsletter via the link in the show notes. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. And before you go, remember, as a Warfare listener, you get a special discount at History Hit. Subscribers get access to blissfully, uninterrupted, ad-free podcasts and thousands of hours of history documentaries. You've got everything from the American Revolution to my own documentaries like Traces of War, Weapons of War and 24 Hours in Normandy, where I follow in the footsteps of the Green Howards on D-Day from their beach landings to being awarded the Victoria Cross and all the way through their first day where they made it seven miles inland further than any other British or American unit. So head over to historyhit.com forward slash subscribe or follow the link in the show notes and use the code WARFARE to get 50% off your next three months. That's the code WARFARE to get 50% off. And if you're an Apple listener, you can subscribe for new ad-free episodes within the app. So give it a go. I know you're gonna love it.